Welcome to Anko Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. It is March 19th, uh, and we're back on our usual Thursday pod schedule. Uh, I dropped a uh, an urgent, an urgency pod uh, uh, earlier in the week about some ideas to help flatten the curve and, and decrease exposure both to ourselves and for our patients. Uh, some other ideas that came out uh, in the brainstorm session on Twitter since then. We're uh, considering transitioning your myeloma patients to exazomib, which is oral for those that are appropriate, so like not those in the upfront setting. Uh, your ITP patients, maybe if they're on ramiplostim or in-plate, which is sub-Q, could they be put on l or one of the other oral uh, thermopoietin mimetics to decrease coming in uh, to the infusion so often. So I know it's, uh, well, it's one of a kind time. Um, honestly, that what we are all going through. Uh, so uh, I will continue to try and do the pods as um, as I also attempt to homeschool uh, my seven-year-old, I guess, uh, uh, for the next uh, at least three weeks and perhaps beyond. But uh, we should still be able to do pods. You know, stuff will be published. There are going to be updates. New information will come out. So we will try to keep you updated. Um, um, if if course, if you have ideas for things you'd like to hear, maybe even not uh, oncology pharmacy related, we can certainly do that. Uh, we all need uh, some things to take our minds off of everything that's going on, uh, certainly. So let's talk good news. So we're going to talk about some recent landmark studies that have had some updated survival analyses, and we're going to put this in a historical perspective as, as I want to do on this podcast, uh, because despite... Um, the seriousness of everything we're going through as a society and a world, there is good news out there, and I think we should share that. So let's start with talking about Cleopatra. Uh, the final overall survival data was uh, published in Lance Oncology, March 12, 2020. And the Cleopatra study, the, the original publication was by Baselga and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012. And this was uh, docetaxel plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab compared to docetaxel plus trastuzumab for the first-line patient, first line treatment of patients with metastatic breast cancer. Now, some of these patients could have received trastuzumab in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, but they had to at least be 12 years out from any uh, HER2-directed therapy. Um, so it's kind of hard to believe this study was published eight years ago. If you had asked me before I looked this up, I would have said, oh, that was like four or five years ago. And as a general rule of thumb to, your, to learners, to students, residents, if your preceptor or the physician on rounds, whoever says, oh, there's a, there's a recent study, go back and find it, it's in the last year. Uh, it's in the last two years. If they say, oh, it was like three months ago, it was at least six months ago, you want to double the time from whatever your preceptor or attending physician said of when a study was published, double it. Because time goes fast when we've been doing this for a while, okay? So anyway, uh, there were around 800 patients that are randomized to docetaxel, uh, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, or docetaxel plus trastuzumab. Now, the median overall survival uh, was 57 months in the pertuzumab arm compared to 41 months. Now, to put that in comparison, if you go back to the original trastuzumab publication by Dennis Slayman and colleagues in 2001 in the New England Journal of Medicine, this was metastatic breast cancer treated with trastuzumab. Uh, so this was not first-line treatment still. So it's it's not even an apple to orange comparison, like an apple to a, uh, to like a uh, an eggplant comparison. Um, but the median overall survival for first-line treatment with trastuzumab and metastatic breast cancer was 25 months. So now with docetaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, we're getting a median overall survival of 57 months. 
and there was a, an editorial that accompanied this saying, are we, are we close to cure or are we curing some of those patients? And the answer is, is probably not, unfortunately. However, uh, the eight-year overall survival in the pertuzumab arm was 37%, so more than a third of these women uh, were alive eight years later. Uh, 23% were alive eight years later if they did not get pertuzumab up front. Now, why do I say that we're probably not carrying many of these patients? Uh, the eight-year progression-free survival was 16% and 10% respectively favoring the pertuzumab arm. Now, the complete response rate, so all the diseases gone, was only 5.5% in the original publication. So there aren't a whole lot of those patients um, who had all their disease shrink, and then again, only 16% did not have death or progression eight years later. So, um, some of these patients do really, really well. We're talking, you know, 16%. So one in, what's that? One in maybe seven or so, uh, are, uh, alive without worsening of their disease eight years later. So who are those patients who did better? So, so a woman asks, I'm getting this regimen. Uh, I saw this publication. How likely am I to be one of these uh, what we call long-term responders. Well, that was the point of this post hoc analysis. So here are the folks who did better, that were more likely to be non or long-term. They were more likely to be long-term responders. They had non-measurable disease. What's non-measurable disease? Uh, disease that's so small you couldn't measure. So potentially this is just an increase in uh, tumor marker, uh, or maybe it was contralateral because they also had non-visceral disease more likely. They were more likely to have uh, three plus uh, HER2 expression by immunohistochemistry. Um, and they were uh, like more likely to have a longer time from diagnosis originally to metastatic disease. So to summarize that, who did better? People that had a lower disease burden people that had a slower growing disease, so a more indolent course to begin with, and then folks who, ha were more who uh, had the strongest HER2 expression. So if you look at the folks who had three plus HER2 expression, 97% of the long-term responders did versus 83% of those that didn't. So to be a long-term responder, you almost have to have three plus HER2 expression. Um, and I've read that one of the original uh, patients on this, uh, the Slayman study from 2001 just had HER2 everywhere, beyond more than anyone had ever seen. And that person, at least at the time of, um, you know, a few years ago when a book was written, uh, was doing a lot and well. So it is possible to cure some of these folks with HER2-directed therapy and chemo, but uh, it's that cancer has to be heavily, heavily driven solely, it seems, based on HER2. Okay, so that's good news for the breast cancer community. Let's talk about uh, the only disease that is more deadly um, than breast cancer ailment, and that is lung cancer. So we're going to talk about the updated survival analysis from Keynote 189. Now, this is one, if you'd asked me, I said this was last year. No, it was two years ago. The original publication by Gandhi and colleagues was in New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. Uh, at the time of that publication, they had a median follow-up of 11 months. This updated is, is more than double that, a median follow-up of 23 months. So as a reminder, this is, a, again, a recent landmark uh, paper, Keynote 189. This is metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous. So again, most of these folks would have been adenocarcinoma, but no squamous cell patients because they don't do as well with pemetrexid. And there were about 600 patients randomized two to one to either platinum plus pemetrexid plus pembrolizumab versus chemo alone. Um, this update analysis uh, was published uh, just recently in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Um, now in the chemo alone arm, they do talk about something like 40% of patients crossed over to Pembro on study, and then afterwards more people off study crossed over to some form of immunotherapy. So it, in all, 
54% of patients, or just over half of the folks randomized just to chemo, eventually got immunotherapy in the second line or subsequent setting. Now that number really should be 100% for crying out loud. Everyone should have been crossed over to immunotherapy at some point. Some of those folks probably had rapid progression and died before they could get second line therapy, but hopefully everyone, you know, we would like everyone uh, to get uh, in that study for a, a, the best comparison to get immunotherapy in a second line setting. So because we have longer follow-up, we can look at a two-year overall survival and two-year progression-free survival. And we're gonna compare that in a second to a landmark non-small cell lung cancer study from like 18 years ago before, uh, in really a, a drastically different era. So uh, the 24-month overall survival for chemo plus Pembro was 45.5% compared to 29.9% with just Pembro alone, or just chemo alone. And the two-year progression-free survival was 20.5%. So one in five patients randomized to chemo and Pembro were alive two years later without the disease progressing. That's compared to only 1.5% in the chemo alone arm. Uh, now, of course, this is uh, immunotherapy, so we know that PDL1 expression is an enriching biomarker. The more PDL1 you express, the better we think that you do. So we're looking at, because this is pembrolizumab, we're looking at tumor proportion score, which is defined as the percent of tumors that have PDL1 staining on their membranes. Okay? So if we look at the highest PDL1 or tumor proportion score, that's more than 50%. Our two year overall survival is 51.2% uh, in chemo plus Pembro, so that's about 6% better than the, the whole population. Now, the chemo alone folks also did better, 39.9% two year overall survival. And if we go down to the TPS 1 to 49, uh, it's 44.3% chemo plus Pembro compared to 30. 3% in the chemo alone, so again, uh, chemo plus Pembro seem to be better in those that have a greater tumor proportion score. Now, if we look at those that had a tumor proportion score or pd one less than 1%, our chemo Pembro group has a lower two-year overall survival at 38.5% compared to the whole population. Chemo alone was 15.5%, but notice that tumor proportion score less than 1%, everyone did poorer. The biggest benefit of Pembro, if you compare it to the group that didn't get Pembro, is in that tumor proportion score less than 1%, and it sounds a little odd to think about that. But the chemo alone folks that had no PDL1, 15.5 were alive 24 months later. If you more than double that, you get 38.5%, which is the chemo plus Pembro group in less than 1%. So uh, you don't get a doubling of overall survival in any of these other groups. It's only in that less than 1%. So there is still value in immunotherapy in those that have low PDL1 expression, at least with pembrolizumab and how they assess PDL1 expression. Okay, so this is good. You know, pretty pretty robust uh, analysis because this is updated. We do want to see um, that the benefit is maintained. And if you look at the overall survival curves, they separate quite a bit at, at 12 months. They come back together a little bit more at 24 months. That probably has to do with folks crossing over from chemo alone to getting immunotherapy. Again, 54% did cross over to get immunotherapy. Uh, so they had some benefit uh, thereafter, but still there is uh, this big overall survival benefit uh, in the whole population at two years. Now, compare this to a, a paper that was given to me as a landmark publication, uh, like when I was a PJ1 resident, um, which would have been back in like 2007. But this is a paper from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002 by Schiller and colleagues, uh, S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R-J-H at all. 
and the title of this is Comparison of Four Chemotherapy Regimens for Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. About 1,200 patients, and the first thing you notice if you look at the baseline demographics, they don't even bother to report the percentages of adeno, squamous, large cell, et cetera. Histology did not matter as far as treated. And these patients were randomized to one of four chemo regimens. So it was cis-paclitaxel, and it was cisplatin on day two, 75 milligrams per meter squared. Paclitaxel, 135 milligrams per meter squared over 24 hours. Can you believe it? Uh, Cisgym, which was a four-week regimen because they got 100 milligrams per meter squared of cis, and then gemcitabine was the typical 1,000 on days 1, 8, 15. Uh, then cisplatin docetaxel, standard doses, and then carboplatin paclitaxel. And the carboplatin dosing was AUC6, which is higher than you probably use in your non-small cell lung cancer patients. And the paclitaxel dose was 225 milligrams per meter squared, which is probably higher than you use in your non-small cell lung cancer patients. But that was the original data. Now, the two, I'm going to tell you that there was no difference, first of all, between these four regimens. So that was the, the immediate takeaway back in 02, is it platinum doublet for everybody. Didn't matter, platinum doublet, platinum doublet, platinum doublet. Um, but if we look at the two-year overall survival, so these survival curves are superimposed. You can't tell one from the other, especially in a black and white publication, all right? Now, I'm going to tell you the two-year overall survival rates. And now keep in mind that we just saw a two-year overall survival rate uh, of chemo plus Pembro, 45.5% in the whole population, and chemo alone with half crossing over to Pembro of 30%, okay? So here's the two-year overall survival rate. Uh, 18 years ago, with 20 years ago from when they were they got this study, so 20 years ago with just platinum doublets, 10%, 13%, 11%, 11%, total population 11%. So in 20 years, we've gone from an 11% two-year overall survival with a platinum doublet, we've quadrupled that to 45%, to above 44% with chemo plus pembrolizumab. Now again, back then, uh, you know I. I think we had Cefpeam in 2012, 2002. We didn't have linazolid. We didn't, you know, these patients get sick. We have better antibiotics. We have better supportive care. So even if you somehow had an unethical <laughs> IRB and you did the same platinum doublet study now, you would have a higher two-year overall response or higher two-year OS than 11% because we have better supportive care. Uh, we're well, better informed, et cetera, et cetera. You, you would see numbers higher than that. It wouldn't be four times higher which tells you that we have done a better job for a couple things. One, we've got some better drugs with immunotherapy. Two, we have learned um, more about non-small cell lung cancer. So this is not a fair comparison to compare a study 18 years ago to now for many reasons, but one is 18 years ago, that was all types of patients. This Keynote 29 is just non-squamous patients, and we know there are differences in how well pemetrexid works with uh, non-squamous histology compared to squamous histology, where squamous histology has upregulation uh, of thymidylate synthetase, so pemetrexid does not work as well. But still, really, really encouraging results uh, for um, the most common and deadly disease uh, that we have, non-small cell or lung cancer in general. Uh, finally, I want to wrap up. Uh, with an Ask Oncopharm uh, segment. So I've done a couple of these. So, so just if, if you're a pharmacist out there and you are overwhelmed with COVID-19 and maybe you're used to working with oncology patients, but now you're being pulled off and doing lots of other stuff and you feel you don't have time to look into some things you need to, you can reach out to the podcast. Uh, ask on, You can use the hashtag Ask Oncopharm. Uh, tag me on Twitter or Instagram if you have questions. So this was a question I got a couple months ago. And somebody asked, uh, I had a patient... Uh, with myeloma who'd been on daratumumab and then had about a four-month break and was going to be restart on daratumumab. And the question was, should we restart at the most recent infusion rate, which was faster, or 
start this person like they had never seen Dara before and do the very initial infusion. Uh, and I said, uh, I had a follow-up question. Well, did the patient, what was the reason for delay? And then this patient had disease progression since then. Did they have an M-spike? Because if they had an M-spike, I would say go back to the very first infusion dose because the infusion reactions are related to disease burden. And if you've got more disease burden, you're more likely to react. Uh, and this is nice because we have a follow-up. So uh, there was an M-spike in this patient. Uh, the patient reacted more than you know an hour into the infusion, even at the, the very first low-dose infusion rate. Uh, so this listener was glad that they didn't do uh, you know, the fast infusion, the most recent infusion schedule the patient had four months ago. Now this is true also for things like rituximab. Uh, the infusion reaction we see is uh, more severe uh, with the very first infusion because it's almost entirely related to disease burden. Uh, so with your second and third infusions, you can give rituximab faster because you've reduced the disease burden, you're less likely to have these infusion reactions. Um, so similar scenario, similar question. You have a patient with CLL who gets R whatever six years ago, and they do fine, and now they're, they're ready they're for uh, second-line treatment six years later. Uh, what do you do with rituximab? You start at the very first infusion dose, the, you know, like the 50 milligrams uh, per hour, because their disease burden is back and bigger, they're more likely to have a reaction. And especially in CLL patients, their white gout can drop and go right back up with cycle two, and sometimes they need that very slow rituximab infusion rate uh, thereafter. This is a little bit different if you have, say, a drug like trastuzumab or something like that, where we do you know, a loading dose. That's another question that comes up about loading doses, but we will save that uh, for another pod. Uh, so uh, again, if you have questions uh, about stuff that uh, I can look into during uh, these trying times, feel free to reach out. You can always find me uh, on Twitter at FarmDetnib. You can find the podcast at OncoFarmPod, both on Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.